In this series, lowimpact.org talks with people working to build a mutually owned, democratic, decentralised economy that builds community and doesn't destroy nature. We want to increase collaboration to bring about system change. Find links to the sites mentioned in the videos in the description below. Join the conversation by liking, commenting and subscribing to our channel. Today I'm talking with Julia Steinberger, Professor of Ecological Economics at the University of Leeds. And tell me if this is right, Julia, a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is that right? Yes, I'm one of the lead authors, so one of many. And I don't speak on behalf of the IPCC because nobody does, the reports do. Mm. So. And both your parents were Nobel laureates, is that right? Uh, that's news to me. That's, um, not, that's uh, not right. Um, one of my parents is a Nobel laureate, uh, Jack Steinberger. Um, my mom maybe should have been. I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure your Wikipedia page says they're both. Have a wow. Cool. Cool. I'm not, I, am not, I shall not correct that. That's for sure. <laughs> and you've got a PhD from MIT and you work on things like the cosmic microwave background of the universe and quantum electrodynamics and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's, that's not what I want to talk I, about. I, I definitely need to check that Wikipedia page. I do have a PhD in physics from MIT, but the, I think some of these things sound a bit more glamorous than they should be. Probably. Okay. Okay. Oh, you'd, you'd lose me very quickly if you talk about that sort of stuff anyway. What I want to talk to, to you about is your work on ecological economics. What's happening to the global environment, the consequences of that for humans, and about GDP growth and its desirability. Um, I read some of your articles. I especially like the timeline one, uh, which went, took, took us back to the, to the um, Miocene. Um, I also watched you on YouTube. I, lo I love what you're saying. I especially liked a couple of things. Um, first is your recognition that all the lovely things that Greenies would like to happen are, are going to face opposition from very wealthy, very powerful people who will lose some of their wealth and power if these things happen. And I don't know if you find this, but I certainly find a lot of people say, we should do this or we should do that, as though we only have to provide the information and when enough people get it, things will change as, as if there aren't very powerful people out there who are, who are not going to let it happen. But why, why do you think that's so difficult for a lot of greenies to see? I, I think actually, so I think that's a combination of two things. One is that um, at the beginning of the sort of big green environmental movement, say um, at the founding of the United Nations Environmental Program, at the beginning when people started to realize that climate change was happening, um, it, the environment was something that was taken seriously by politicians um, and to some extent by business people and was very put very front and center and was not controversial in that sense. So it was something that, uh, you know, the, the Rio summit for the earth was, was a big deal. Somebody was just reminding, um, reminding people on Twitter about this, Stephen Barlow, I think, who, you know, hundreds of heads of state showed up. It was the biggest head of state gathering pretty much ever. Uh, so at the, at the beginning, at some point in the past, it would not have been um, a delusional belief to, to think that everybody was actually going to take this seriously and do something about it because the right, everybody was saying the right things and to some extent even doing the right things, you know, passing legislation on water, on air, cleaning up the hole in the ozone layer, 
those things happened. Mm. Uh, there was, you know, there was mobilization for them, but also the politicians took them seriously and did them. Now, slight problem, these things were not as hard to tackle in terms of what they do to the economy uh, as climate change. So climate change is a full frontal challenge, and I don't think that that was taken seriously. Yeah. So, I so I think there's one, so there's one thing which is sort of a history of being kind of a okay to be apolitical because things good things happened in, in environmental movements in the past in terms of environmental goals. And the other thing is, um, that, that I would say in terms of not wanting to see the political aspect of what we're up against is that sustainable development was presented as apolitical. It was a very much like have your cake and eat it too mm. kind of framing of the problem, which was compelling to everybody because to some extent nobody wants a fight. So it's like, okay, if we just use the word sustainable development and we just go forward and try to have, you know, green growth, decoupling, whatever it is, well, that's the, we'll yeah. get there. We'll get, we'll, we, won't, we don't need that fight. We're not in a strong position yeah. as environmentalists. Let us not go out and seek that fight that we might not win. Let's just be nice to each other. <laughs> and I yeah. think that that framing was probably, in hindsight, uh, kind of disastrous. Yeah. And that, that brings me on to the second thing that I liked about what you were saying, and that's not enough sort of change-oriented people. I don't like to say left or right but uh, not enough people who really want change are saying, they're not saying enough about GDP growth. So you've looked into climate change a lot, obviously. And my question is, can there be a solution to climate change within a, a sort of perpetually growing global economy? No. No. I... Um, did, were you, did you want more words to associate with that? I think quite, quite possibly, it, yes. I mean, so many people just can't see that, though. I think that the, I think people have wanted to see it. And, uh, you know, I, myself at the beginning of my career, so I switched careers a lot, I switched topics a lot. And uh, at the beginning, I was like, okay, let's look for this green growth thing. Let's see where it happens. Let's see, maybe it's in some sectors, maybe it's here, maybe it's there. I looked for it and con con convinced myself that it just wasn't happening out there in reality and stopped, stopped looking for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, but that's been happening more and more. So I think that now we're really seeing not just individual studies, but meta studies. So really comprehensive, exhaustive ones. Um, so there was one by Hickel and Callis uh, last year. There was uh, a couple that came out recently by uh, Helmut Haberl and uh, Dominic Wiedenhofer which are devastating. So they're both open access, they're in environmental research letters, they're a part one, part two. And they just go over the entire, um, the entire scope of ev published evidence on this and come back and say, no, no way. And we really need to be thinking about this very differently. So yeah. for me, those were those, those nails in the coffin. I mean, that this is, at, and uh, there was another study by uh, Otero et al, by Yago Otero and his colleagues, on biodiversity, so not just climate change resource use, but biodiversity and its links to economic growth. And they're just saying, we have to do conservation differently. If we care about species conservation, we care about biodiversity conservation, we have to take seriously the fact that economic growth is driving biodiversity loss. And here's all the evidence and think about it. So yeah. I think that just in the past couple of years, uh, really devastatingly strong studies have come out. Um, so yeah, so now I feel very confident that I can just say no. But are you optimistic that it might sort of nudge towards the mainstream at some point? I mean, you know, it's one of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Number eight is 
economic growth, yeah. sustainable economic growth. Yeah. How and do I we, think, yeah. I think that that's something that we're getting close to, we're probably not going to be fast enough. Um, I mean, I'm not optimistic. I don't believe in hope or those things. It's not my personality and it's not my job. Right, that was something um, I was going to ask you. That's something I was going to ask you a bit later on. But uh, yeah. Well, we can, we can get back to it. But but yeah. the thing is, I think in terms of we're getting much better at articulating why economic growth or how economic growth and social and progress and environmental sustainability are completely different things, mm -hmm. and that we should not. We're, we're sort of learning to tell ourselves and tell each other the story of why economic growth is not the same as good things. And in mm. fact, has a lot of bad things associated with it. You know, Thomas Piketty, the most eminent economist of our generation and probably a couple in the past, um, has really shown that economic growth is accompanied by widening inequality. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, growth, and growth happens. Where does that growth come from? The growth goes to the accrues to the wealthy. That's one of the things he showed. Where does it come from? It comes from impoverishing the, 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 low, the, the lower classes um, who don't have assets anymore. So you're seeing this very real phenomenon where the poorest levels of society have net negative wealth because basically the system runs on debt now. You're basically making rich people richer by having household debt at the poorest levels. And we're in this financial system and that's how it grows these days. So the, the, we're learning to tell each other the story of how growth is economically, socially, and environmentally disastrous, and how we can do good things differently. But we're possibly not telling that story fast enough. What, what, what term do you favor? Steady state, degrowth, post-growth, and why? Um, I'm very opportunistic. I'd probably be happy with any of those terms. I'm quite happy with degrowth. I'm quite happy with post-growth. Uh, steady state, I think, is... Um, not possible because right now we can't we're headed for a period of very large instability just sort of pragmatically so maybe we would have a sort of long-term goal of a steady state economy but i don't think that that's in our near or medium future i think that right now we have to be facing a period of um, very 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 fast and strong degrowth certainly mm -hmm. on the physical resource use side if we want to have a chance of maintaining stable climatic conditions that allow us to have things like agriculture uh, so yeah, yeah, I think it's quite just, happy with in that sense. Yeah, it's just, it's just that it's a harder sell, isn't it? Degrowth. It, it it makes people think, oh, I have to give things up immediately, which yeah. they which they probably do. So the the thing is, we're going up against a hegemon, right? So economic growth is this hegemonic concept that that sort of sits in the middle of our societies. And the problem with any term, a lot of people say, oh, I don't like degrowth because um, it's negative. But everything else gets co-opted by growth because growth is the sort of Moloch, the god in the middle of our, it's our, it's our secular deity, right? And it is dominant and it will sort of swallow everything else, you know, sustainable growth, green growth, equitable growth, inclusive growth, everything becomes part of growth. So if you're going up against the hegemon, you kind of have to, have to fly that flag. And so that's one of the reasons I'm happy with degrowth. It makes people think. And I think one of the things that they do is the first couple of times they hear it, they go, oh, that's oh, not nice. And then they think, oh, well, why would anybody want something not nice? And then they think about it more, read about it more. And I think it's something that people come to terms with 
yeah. I've seen fairly rapidly. I've seen Americans come to terms with it. I guess we, we're only talking about a small percentage of the population. I don't, I don't think the mainstream are going to come, come to terms with any of those terms, really. I don't think they're going to even confront them. Um, uh, Maybe. I don't know. I'm very hopeful in the sense that I'm seeing, you know, there are these popular movements that involve a lot of people, including the, the, the student strikes. You know, Greta Thunberg went up at, and gave an anti-growth speech at the UN, right? Mm. She literally mm. mentioned, you're doing this for economic growth. How dare you? Yeah, yeah. Um, ecological. Sorry. And and also the Sunrise Movement in the U.S. and and a lot of people who are associated with the um, uh, Democratic Socialists. So it's sort of the left wing of the Democratic Party who are sort of bigger and bolder than they've ever been. Some of them are very unhappy with degrowth, and some of them are quite comfortable with it, especially if they consider themselves to be eco-socialists. So I think it's I think it's I don't I think it, I'm not saying that everybody's going to go around using that term. I think that it's people who are part of the conversation are learning to bring it further. Um, ecological economics, forgive my ignorance. Is it a specific discipline? Can you get a degree in ecological economics? If you go to the University of Leeds, which I'm sadly uh, leaving right now, um, yes, you can get a master's in ecological economics. Um, absolutely. And, and do all ecological econo economists see the absurdity of perpetual growth or even there are there some people who believe that we can continue to grow um ecological economics has not ever made a statement per se against economic growth so there's, there's some people who think that some parts of the economy could still grow so they in general people do distinguish growth and progress and they certainly would agree that some parts of the economy need to degrow and um, and that's actually really interesting because that's a mainstream economic statement now. So after coronavirus and because of the climate crisis, um, that was a statement made by hundreds of um, Dutch economists. We need to deliberately degrow some sectors of the economy. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's a strong statement. I know that some organizations, for example, the New Economics Foundation, they they haven't come out against growth. It's more like um, GDP growth isn't everything. I mean, it's the same with Kate Raworth and the donut economics. It, it doesn't say we can't continue to have GDP growth. It says it's not everything, which really isn't the same thing. Um, well, it's about turning away from that metric as, social, as a metric of, of social progress. So, and I think that these intermediates are, are very important, by the way. So I'm very much in favor of there being a spectrum of debate because it allows people it allows that debate to happen across that larger fraction of the population. Yeah, 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 yeah. So very pragmatically, I uh, admire Kate Rayworth's work. I admire the work of the New Economics Foundation. I think there's a lot of strong points there. And the fact that they're there sort of taking the middle ground of saying some parts, you know, again, Kate Rayworth and the New Economics Foundation will have no problem saying some parts of the economy need to be growth. You're talking about a Green New Deal. You're saying some sectors, specifically fossil fuel sectors, and adjacent industries need to degrow to nothing. To nothing at all, yeah. And I mean, and we need, to grow, we need to grow other stuff, right? So, yeah. so I think that having that perspective of 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 being of being willing to say that and being willing to put it in a positive picture of a whole economy that is socially just, equitable, sustainable, everybody has a job, that kind of thing, uh, is really important without necessarily using the words degrowth. I mean, how do you think we might best get it across to people? I mean, it's still a minority position, and I know a lot of intelligent people who just don't get it at all. 
They think I'm crazy if I start talking. And you hear on Radio 4 all the time, all the time, how are we going to get back to growth? How are we going to get back to growth? Yeah. How, how do we start getting through? Uh, well, I've never been asked on Radio 4. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that there, I think that there, I think that that position is um, very, the growth, pro-growth position is very strong. And for some people, it's still, you know, the sun rises in the morning, good things come from growth. Yeah. But, uh, but the fraction of people who understand differently has grown by leaps and bounds. And I would say now includes large chunks of mainstream economists, not all mainstream economists, but certainly, you know, enough for hundreds of them in the Netherlands to sign a letter. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know, and, and, and I've been signing similar things in the UK across Europe. So, so they're at least within the academic professional sphere. I think that that sentiment is, um, for lack of a better word, growing and it's grown by leaps and bounds. So the acceptance that we need a fundamentally different economy is growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, in just the last year, people have been making progress and sort of being able to understand and talk about it in ways that I hadn't seen before. And just being much bolder and more um, um, uncompromising in terms of what, what articulating what this means, that it doesn't mean negative things, but that it means necessary things. And I hope that coronavirus helps with that as well, is that when we take something seriously as a public health crisis and we want to save lives, then we do stuff differently. And climate is a lot worse than coronavirus. Uh, mm. Not right now, but it will be soon enough. Yeah, and we yeah, yeah, yeah. can still stop it. We can still stop that big, uh, that big problem, or you can stop it. It's worst incarnation. That yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I often hear that um, growth can be dematerialized. And it sort of drives me insane. I mean, it, growth means more spending power. And if, if there's not an increase in spending power, there hasn't been growth. And so if you have increase in spending power, then there's no way to ring fence it so, so that it's not spent on material things. It can't be deemed. So, so these two articles that I mentioned by Haber, by Wiedenhofer et al. and Haber et al. Um, in environmental research letters, um, they go... They don't. They look at everything. They look at emissions and resource use, so materials and energy and emissions, and across the board, dematerialization not happening. No, no. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So here's another big question: Can we take the growth out of capitalism, or will it re require an entirely new economic system? The reason we have growth is capitalism. <laughs> that's yeah. that's another thing. It actually goes the other way around. Um, so capitalism is a system based on uh, competition. Yeah. Uh, so firms do not have a choice. They are competing in the market. Uh, and because of that, and, and they have a, um, um, a motive of profit accumulation. That's what they're there for. So they're competing and they need to accumulate more. And the only way that more that firms survive in that context is on a basis of growth. So growth is something where that allows firms to survive. Mm. Um, because otherwise they would go bust. So yeah. lack of capitalism is a crisis. And growth is a stabilization mechanism of capital that allows crises to be pushed forward and forward and forward into the future, just yeah. even a little bit. Yeah, and that's so that's, that's what we're living. We're, so it's not a question of can we take growth out of capitalism. Is The reason that we have this growth imperative is because we are in a capitalist system that doesn't just can't cope otherwise. Yeah. And it's something that, as a physicist, let me tell you, one of the craziest things as a physicist 
is going in, into economics and saying, okay, so where are your alternative models of what a macroeconomy will look like that doesn't need to grow? And people look at you like you've just sprouted yeah. five other heads, right? Yeah. Green antennas. And it's like, you guys didn't even bother to model a non-growing economy? Like, maybe that's what you have now, but you didn't even bother to model something differently, like in your mind, in your computer? Yeah. You just, I know, it's a religion. That, I mean, that's when you realize that it's not a science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because because there, it's really this, this fixation on the, this is what the system should be and a refusal to consider alternatives because, in fact, when, it, when you drill down, when you understand what's going on in terms of the, the, the substructure of the economy, capitalism does not have other options. Yeah. It's guess... not possible to have capitalism in a non-growing setting. Yeah. It's a crisis. Yeah. That results in crises. That results in too many firms going bust, and it's sort of, uh, it, yeah, it's it's sort of a, a, a downward spiral. So degrowth can be fine. It does mean getting rid of capitalism. Life. Yeah, I guess this competition means that you know firms have to advertise to get to gain new customers, but the advertising also has the effect of increasing consumption overall because it's yeah. you can't do anything else. So and, uh, the, the, do you know Schneiberg and Gold? Um, no. And the, the treadmill of production. So there were American sociologists, which basically had a Marxian perspective on the economy, and they basically said, if you look at what the economy is really doing, um, it's not. We have this idealized version that the consumer demands stuff mm -hmm. and produce, produce for consumer demand. But what they were saying is actually, if you look at the real structural imperatives, if you look at what these institutions are doing to each other, they are. The, the fact that producers have overproduction yeah. means that they need to create demand. And that's what they're doing with advertising. It's what they do by market expansion. They have all these different mechanisms to create demand. Yeah. And uh, one of the things we looked at uh, in a study that I did, we looked at the creation of automobile, yeah. of automobile dependence. Yeah. So looking at the car as the central product of our, of our era. And you see all these different ways that the product is not the car. The car product is car dependence. Is yeah. making that demand exist in society and, and removing other options from people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever, nobody ever woke up and thought, you know what? I want, I want a razor blade. I want a razor with five blades. No, nobody ever thought that. It was a sort of. Uh, nobody ever thought it. Uh, nobody ever thought I want bluey whiteness in my sheets. Nobody ever thought that. <laughs> it was all sort of generated by the advertising industry. Yeah. But I mean, so, so but but countries are in global competition to attract capital, well, which is why they're not yeah. gonna they're not gonna um, you know they're not they're not gonna do that with a with a with a stable or shrinking GDP. So they sort of have to go all out for economic growth. Countries is the word countries is doing a lot of work in that in that statement. So it's true what you said, but I think it, we have to consider who within countries is doing this. So one of the things we see is we see inequality around the world between countries, but we also see inequality within countries as well. And when we're talking about countries need to attract capital, we're talking about a fairly small population within each country, which actually benefits yeah. from that foreign capital and the financial entanglements it brings. Whereas the rest of the population suffers under structural adjustment programs, has to pay school fees, has their food becoming more expensive, rent becoming more expensive. So you have this sort of polarization and impoverishment that goes with global capital having access to a domestic market. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's really, it's really interesting how them, uh, actually again, sociologists just published a paper showing 
how the World Bank and the IMF were transformed away from their original purpose and towards opening up foreign markets for capital um, in, in a very, you know, in the sort of American way of, of uh, um, yeah, and leading to structural adjustment programs and those kinds of things. And it's really interesting. And it was a deliberate shift that was driven by um, big financial firms in the U.S. And yeah. they sort of told the politicians what to do or the diplomats what to do, and that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I heard another argument recently, which I'm ashamed to say I'd never thought about before, but it, it's a technical innovation means that labor productivity constantly rises, which means that the economy has to grow to maintain uh, full employment. Yeah, and, and Tim Jackson makes that point really well in, a, in a prosperity without growth as well. Really? Labor productivity is a, is a huge, is a huge labor. Um, David Harvey is another person who talks about it in a Marxian perspective. So technological innovation is not neutral. Technological right. innovation is the, the, the types that are developed and adopted are ones that enable more profits to be made in a certain way. And a lot, one way you make profits is you make profits off of labor, labor productivity. Yeah. So you change the way that labor allows you to make profits, and that's how you make money, and that's how technology is invested. And so this tech, the, the, the technical dynamism that we see is not, um, is not neutral here. It, it is going to cause the system to expand yeah. in yeah. those kinds of ways. As you started to say that, I found myself wanting to do this, but there were only two of us, so I don't, I don't need to do that. <laughs> So, so uh, we need a new system. How do we actually say this? Well, I mean, most people would, you start talking about getting rid of capitalism and people instantly think you're a Stalinist. They do, don't they? Which is kind of interesting because, you know, a lot of people are not Stalinists um, and still think that capitalism is a horribly bad idea. Again, this is, uh, this is, really, this is really interesting. Within ecological economics, um, I once gave a talk where we talked about inequality and capitalism and things like that. And I remember somebody at the just getting up and saying the Soviet Union was a failure. And just exactly. Like, yeah. and exactly. Like, I okay. Uh, interesting free association. Um, so yeah, so that that idea is, is there very strongly. Um, and how do we get around it? I think uh, I think one of the ways we get around we we confront it is we have to confront it directly and talk about all the ways in which we're not going to be um, at all like Soviet Russia because Soviet yeah. Russia and, and and China right now, by the way, yeah. China right yeah, yeah, now yeah. is a complete horror show, environmentally, socially, economically, you name it. Um, yeah. In terms of democracy, it's, it's, a, it's a very bad actor as well. So, um, so we have to talk about these things openly. And I think one of the, the main concepts we need to get across is that of economic democracy. So the alternative to capitalism is not you know state-imposed central planning with a few people making all the decisions. It's actually something where we bring the economy into the civil sphere, into the civic sphere. So we're talking about um, services. Something this is something that Neff talks about as well. When we talk about universal basic services, or we talk about the services that people really need to live, like water, transport, food. Uh, energy, um, uh, housing, these are things that we can own and deliver democratically on a community basis using sort of different networked approaches of organizations doing it slightly differently. But there are a whole bunch of beautiful, wonderful ideas that exist in practice. You can yeah. see how they are being done 
very successfully yeah. in practice that have this economic democracy element to them. Yeah. And that's what we need across the board. So we basically need to move to that model. And you know, the funny thing is that, you know, the same people who say, oh, we don't want Soviet Russia, they're the same people who really would like to join a credit union, who really yeah. would like to go to a housing association or a housing cooperative yeah. because the rent's cheaper. Yeah, or who yeah, really yeah. want to, or who participate in having their veg box delivered. So yeah, I, I, I was involved in a public debate recently. They asked me to give the sort of um, the anti-capitalist sort of um, side I, of things, and um, the my opponent said he was he was very pro-capitalist. And and as the debate went on, it turns out he's a member of a community energy scheme and a community-supported agriculture scheme. And I said, whoa, 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 stop, stop! You think that's <laughs> capitalism? You think that's capitalism? He says, yes, it's a free market. I said, oh, so you think capitalism is a free market? He said, yes. I said, oh, okay, okay, okay. So if you think, yeah. if you're in favor of community agriculture, community supported agriculture and community energy, then let's not argue anymore. If you think that's capitalism, fine, let's do that. But <laughs> I don't think it's capitalism. Nope, absolutely not. And it's, it's uh, because capitalism is about profit accumulation to a few, you know, to a few actors. Yeah. And all of these community schemes have the idea of reinvestment. And that's what we need right now. We need this, I mean, in terms of like telling people that we need to transform the system completely, the economic system completely, that's something that the IPCC is shouting from the rooftops. In terms of convincing people that it's something that's desirable for them, I think we need to be making those links between, you know, the, the good stuff, like the community energy scheme, which is great, the housing association, which is great, the cooperative, which is great, you know, that these are the things that we, that we really want. Yeah. And uh, but they have to become mainstream and we have to shut down alternatives. I mean, th I think that that's something that people have a harder time wrapping their heads around. You yeah, can convince yeah. people that we want to create beautiful alternatives and everybody's all happy to do that. But the hard work is actually shutting down the, the, the big, the big driving forces of badness. Yeah. And that's what that needs doing as well. So the, the alternatives are there, but the thing that's preventing them be, from becoming, uh, from becoming the norm is um, the existence of these other bad actors, bad institutions, bad economic um, modes of functioning. And so we need, that's, that's I think the harder thing is can really convincing people to be up for that fight.